good to see everyone back tonight, and especially our young people. Uh, when you stand up in the pulpit and you look out and you see the faces, you really miss a certain group of people when they're gone, and particularly the young people. And I am so impressed that so many of them went to a training session this weekend called Evangelism University, uh, emphasizing the spreading of the gospel. And I am proud that Brother Steve leads this group of young people in a right way and encourages them in such a, a positive way to be faithful Christians and spread the borders of the kingdom. Last Sunday night, I began a series of lessons on DIY, and I mentioned the fact that I enjoy watching the television network that is called the DIY Network, as well as Home and Garden TV. I did think after the lesson was over, though, I probably should have given a little bit of disclaimer in the sense that I enjoy watching the shows where people mess up. And when you're talking about doing Bible study, I thought, Maybe that's not the message I want to communicate is that I enjoy seeing people mess up because when it comes to Bible study, we ought to want everybody to read, to study, and to apply the Bible as it should be applied and not for anyone to mess up or make mistakes. But in order to do it right, we sometimes have to step back and say, this is what we do and this is how we do it. I want to begin by pointing out one of the greatest challenges that man faces is to search through and understand correctly the Word of God. If you'll remember in John chapter 5 and verse 39 when Jesus was surrounded by the Jewish people questioning His uh, deity, the fact that He was the Christ, He says, you search the Scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. When Paul had gone to the cities of Thessalonica and Berea, and the description is in verse 11 of Acts 17, these were more noble, these were more fair-minded, and those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. These were great people. These were noble people. These were honorable people because they would pick up their Bibles and they would say, if Paul's preaching or Silas is preaching or whoever is preaching, we're going to be able to take our copy of God's Word and make sure that's exactly what it ought to be. Brother Joe just read to you from the American Standard reading from 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. If you're reading the original King James, I like the way that the words are put there. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The word study there indicates a person's effort, his diligence. That's the reason why the American Standard and the New King James say, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A person who's giving the effort to rightly divide, to handle aright the word of truth. That's our challenge before us. And I do want to emphasize, as I pointed out last week, when we talked about reading, we need to be the kind of people who simply are devoted to growing in our knowledge of God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, he said of him, I have many things to say and hard of interpretation seeing you have become dull of hearing. 
For when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone teach you, the American Standard Reading says, the rudiments of the first principles are the oracles of God. So we have three lessons. Last week was how to read. Tonight is how to study. And next week will be how to apply the Bible. And I do recognize as I approach this lesson, there's so much that I am not going to be able to address. And literally this could have been a six-month series of lessons. I really wanted to just introduce you to the subject. But I do want to make this offer. If you are studying God's Word and you're really trying to learn and you say, I really need some more help, I'll be glad to help you individually. Or if it's, or a group says, well, we want to know a little bit more, I'll be glad to help a group. But tonight we're going to talk about three things that are in part important part of studying God's Word. We want to talk about content, we want to talk about context, and then to contemplate. Let's begin, first of all, with the idea of content. Whenever you and I open our Bibles, what we are interested in is the content. You may have a beautiful Bible. It may have a leather cover on it, gold gilded pages. You may have all the nice thumb indexes and everything. But you know what's important? It's what's on the page. The very words that are written... In fact, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 14, Peter is recounting his preaching before the household of Cornelius, and he is recounting what the Spirit said. It says, Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved? Peter's going to come and he's going to use words. They will be inspired words, that is, words from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Which things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the Spirit teaches, combining spiritual things with spiritual words. That's the American Standard rendering of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. In other words, you use the words from God to be able to teach man. But when you think about words, you've got all different kinds of words. If you'll remember grammar, you've got your nouns, you've got your verbs, you've got your adverbs, you've got your prepositions, you've got your articles, and you say, oh man, I didn't know I was going to have to go through a grammar lesson. You're not. So I put it, you conjugate and conjunct. I'm going to use the letter C a lot through this lesson. Uh, It just happened to fall... Uh, with me as I was studying this week. But for instance, I just want to point out that verbs have their tenses. And that is, you can talk about things in the past, things in the present, things in the future. And I will tell you that the original language has what's called the present tense and the aorist tense. And if something is present, means it's ongoing. Like, he is running Running is something he's doing presently. It's a continual action. Or you can say that someone did something one time and it was done. That's the aorist tense. And then you have words that conjoin. That is like the word and and disjoin, the word or. 
And I know you're saying, wow, I really didn't intend to spend all this time. So let me, for just a few moments, take some examples. Let's look and see how the Bible uses this. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says, Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He did not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ? Do you see something so significant that the very number of the word is important? Because the promise was made to the seed. But what do you mean by the seed? Not plural, seeds, singular seed. And the singular seed was Christ. You see, it's important as I read through the Bible that I give attention to the very words that are being used, even to whether they're singular or plural. For instance, and this is just throwing this in, you know, every time that you read about those who oversee God's church on earth, whom God appointed, they're always in the plurality, plural. That's the reason why we have elders. We don't have a pastor. We have elders that shepherd God's flock. The word and, the conjunction, to join two things together, has a very, very important part. For instance, in Mark 16 and verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. You take two things and you join them together and they become like a singular thing that has to be done. You have to believe and you have to be baptized. What if I don't believe? Being baptized won't do me any good at all. Because he says, but he who does not believe will be condemned. What if you took a person who was baptized but didn't believe? You just got him wet. You see how important that conjunction is. It's used in so many places. Like, for instance, Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That word and is so important. But you know, the word or is also important. If you go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees had been pressing hard upon Jesus. And they had been questioning him about this and about that. And they wanted to ask him, by whose authority have you been doing these things? And here's the way Jesus responded. The baptism of John, where was it from? Now notice the way he phrases it. From heaven or from men. The word or means either or. So that if you have one, you don't have the other. If you have the other, it's not this. So it's either from heaven or it's from men. You can't have both. And they reason among themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all count John as a prophet. You know what their answer was? Well, no. Because either or had those people hooked. In fact, that's why it's called the horns of a dilemma sometimes. 
But let me point out to you the value of understanding the difference between a present tense and an aorist tense. If you go with me to 1 John chapter 1, you'll remember these words very well. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. When you get to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, that produces a real problem for people. Because when you get there, John writes... Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And someone says, how do I reconcile those two? How do I deal with the fact that here he says the one who's been born of God does not sin? It's because it's in the present tense, ongoing Whosoever has been born of God does not keep on sinning, for the seed remains in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you keep on sinning, you're proving you're not a child of God. doesn't mean that you won't commit a sin, but you can't just keep on the practice of sin. And if you go back to 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we've never violated God's law one time, we make him a liar. So you have no contradiction there, but you understand the difference between the present. Now, very briefly, I'd like to talk about context. And it's hard to overemphasize context. When you start thinking about context, there's three different types of it. There's historical context. That's the time, the culture, the circumstances surrounding a text. For instance, there was always background, if you will, a historical context. For instance, if you're going to explain to someone the depression that occurred in the United States in the last century, there's a lot of context that you have to give to it. You have to talk about the, the drought, you have to talk about the overextending of people's financial ability. There's a lot of things that are historically significant behind it. When I go to the Bible, it's valuable for me to try to understand the historical context behind it. Most people don't realize that when you get to the New Testament, the Roman Empire is in control. And when you read about centurions, you're reading about Roman officials. When you read about being compelled to go a mile with someone, you're reading about the law that obligated someone to do things. When you read about the Herods, you need to realize their role as vassal kings and vassal governors under the Roman Empire. There's a lot of historical context. Number two, you need to know a little bit about the literary context. For instance, if I'm reading the book of Psalms, I'm going to read that differently than I read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
because it's a different type of document. If you were to go into your grandmother or grandfather's house after they passed away and you were to open the chest and you were begin to pull the papers out and you were begin to look and say, what is this? Well, this is their will. It's written one way. Or here's a letter from Grandpa when he was in the war sending a letter back to Grandma and oh, how lovey-dovey it was. You see, you read it differently. The third kind of context is what we call biblical context. There's the immediate context, those verses that are just before it and just after it. And there's the remote context, that which is further away. For instance, if you're reading about Moses, you may want to read about the book of Exodus, beginning with the first chapter. But you'll read about Moses quite frequently in the New Testament, particularly books like the book of Hebrews. Well, for just a moment, let me give you some examples to draw attention to what I'm talking about. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you'll look at verse 8 and verse 27. Paul writes, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. Paul at that time was not married. If you go to verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You see, Paul is suggesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're not married, don't get married. And someone might say, well, is he really saying that? We studied in our class this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he says, I desire therefore that the younger widows marry. Bear children. Manage a home. I want them to get married. Now, is there a problem? Well, you have to understand the historical context. Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 7. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. You understand, because of the circumstances in which the church was facing in Corinth, it's best not to get married. But he adds in verse 28, But even if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. Paul is suggesting it's going to be tougher for you if you get married. And so for right now, because of the distress... That's historical background. You read that, you understand why he recommends against marrying. But that doesn't mean that's the same everywhere and every place because not every place was facing that. In fact, Hebrews 13 and verse 4 said, Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable in God's sight. Let me for just a moment point out to you about how you read some books like the book of Psalms. There's so many of them. I just want to pull out one, just Psalms 24, verses 1 through 4. And the way you read the book of Psalms is understand the parallels that the psalmist used. Look with me at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Then he turns around and says, the world and those who dwell therein. First part, 
the, the earth's the Lord's in all its fullness. Now he says, the world and all who are in it. That's just stating it again in a different fashion. Look at verse 2. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. First line of that second verse is restated in the second line, established upon the waters. Verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Ascending to the hill is getting up to the high place where one would worship. That's the holy hill. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then he explains, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Clean hands and a pure heart is when a man doesn't offer something to an idol and his heart is honest. Do you see the parallelism just in those four verses? Now that's what's called synonymous parallelism. That is because it's stating it the same way in the second part of that verse. There's another one called antithetical parallelism where you state just the opposite. And uh, we could again go through those. But you read parts of God's Word differently because you're reading poetry. But then, let's think about context, biblical context, for just a moment. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, or the Hebrew writer says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. You see, when I read those words, there's a very key indicator in the first word. Therefore, that's always going to point me backwards and say, look what's before that because I'm drawing a conclusion. That's going to point me back to Hebrews chapter 11 and all of those great, wonderful people who served God. The Abels, the Enochs, the Noahs, the Abrahams, the Isaac. The Joseph, the Moses, the Rahab, and then you get down to Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, the prophets, all of those are the people who are these great cloud of witnesses. But then when I get to verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Well, I've got to go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to read about Jesus, how he endured the cross, how that when they nailed him on the cross, people spat upon him. They cursed him. As I look and see all that he endured, did he enjoy that? No, he despised the shame that went with it. Pled to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, as you move from the immediate context to the remote 
context. The third part of our lesson is to contemplate. And this is something very, very important. And that is where a person thinks and dwells upon it. In other words, you read a part of Scripture and you you mull it over in your mind. Let me give you some passages. Here's Joshua. Moses has died and now he is ready to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may to observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You see, everything that Moses has provided for you, you read it, you think about it, and you act on it. Or Psalms 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Did you notice that's the same thing that was spoken to Joshua? Meditate on it day and night when you're walking about and you're thinking about something that you read, okay, think about it some. Think about it at night time when you get ready to go to bed. You could spend a long time in the book of Psalms, Psalms 119. You get to verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day, all the day. David would take God's word. He said, they're sweeter to me than honey in the honeycomb. Much more to be desired than gold. Yes, even fine gold. He looked at God's word as something that he wanted. Or to put it in the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he hungered, he thirsted for righteousness. You know, it's valuable to take God's word and let it indwell your mind. When Paul wrote the Philippians, and I can imagine the first time this is being read before the congregation. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, our problem, we meditate on the things we don't like. We meditate on the people we don't like. We meditate on how we would get back at them if we only could. We, we do dwell upon and we think about negative things. You know what happens to us? Negative things comes out of us. 
But what is Paul saying? True, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report. There's anything virtuous, praiseworthy. Think on these things. Meditate on these things. For just a few minutes, let me offer some suggestions about some ways to reflect on a passage. You're sitting in your chair at night. You've got your Bible out. And you're reading as we discussed about last week, not just haphazard flipping from here and there. You're reading and you're you're reading a passage which may be two or three paragraphs, maybe a whole chapter, maybe two chapters. But you're reading And now you want to meditate on that. You want to think about it. Here's a suggestion. Condense it and construct an outline. Take you a little notepad and put next to you and say, okay, what are the main points that the writer is trying to communicate in this passage? Okay, number one, number two, number three. One of my teachers, Brother Clive Woods, years ago, used to use another technique very similar to this. He called it headline and summary. He said, imagine you're having to write a newspaper article on this passage. And he said, what would you put as your headline? And then how would you summarize it? Well, I'd suggest to you to condense down the main thoughts and construct you an outline. After you have dwelt upon it, you've thought about it yourself, Consult and confirm. That is, I'd suggest that you consider what other people have drawn from this passage. Now, there's, there's places that you might go. For instance, you might go to a commentary. You might listen to someone else preach a sermon on that topic. You may read it in another translation. But you try to make sure that you consult and the fact that you're not drawing a conclusion that is totally different from what everybody else drew. Now, you may have seen something someone else hadn't seen, but confirm that. Make sure that that you are going down the right path as you study this passage. Number three, compare and contrast. You know those essays that your teachers used to make you write in school? you got a couple things, you compare them together and you contrast them. Okay, I'm reading about Moses. And I'm reading about Moses as he's arguing with God about going to Pharaoh and letting his people go in Exodus chapter 3. And as I'm reading about that and I'm, I'm hearing Moses say, Lord, send somebody else, don't send me. And you're reading on a little bit further, and Moses is saying, Lord, I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. And you begin to say, well, how does that look at myself? Am I doing the same thing that Moses is doing? Am I arguing? Am I finding excuses to... That's the reason why I won't do this and I won't do that is because I'm trying to say, okay, well, I can't talk. You ever heard a teacher say, I'm not a good teacher? Surely you can find somebody else who will do that. Brother Don hears that all the time, don't you? I'm getting a head shake, not an amen, but I'm getting a head shake. 
You see, the truth is, we need to make sure that when we study the Bible, we're actually studying and saying, am I learning something? As I meditate and I think about it, I need to be thinking about, as I compare not only Moses to me, but I, I need to compare Moses to Jesus. I will refer you again to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Too many people have become intellectually lazy. I say that with sadness. How many of you remember a time, some of you older people I don't know you will, that there were people who were walking and talking Bibles. They read their, People read their Bible every day. They actually even studied it in school. Learned the great lessons that were found there. And people could be able to tell you where something was found quickly, and they could be able to tell you the details of it because they knew it. I'm amazed even some of these people, you watch the TV show Jeopardy and when it comes to particle physics, oh, they know those things. When it comes to the Bible, they avoid that column like the plague because they don't know what it says. Here's a problem. Romans 16, verse 18 says, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. And by their smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Why is it that people like Joel Olstein can fill an arena with thousands of people and lie to them. And everybody just lap it up. Why is it there are preachers who will tell people what they want to hear and people will say, oh, let's flock to that church. When you go to 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. See, the Bible recognizes that. Oh, there's so many other passages that I want to talk about. Second Peter chapter 3. But I think I've made the point that I wanted to make. And that is, is that we need to, because we can, and God wants us to, to know the truth. Stated very simply by Jesus, John 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You study God's Word, you learn the truth, you obey the truth, and you're free. You're free. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, and you don't know what you need to do, Please, I'm asking you, please, sit down with us after services and let's talk about it. What will it take for you to know what you need to know? Well, now here it is. If you do know what you need to do, why are you not doing it? Why are you putting your soul at risk? And if you are a Christian, and you're not living right. Why are you putting your soul at risk? 
you have a great opportunity to answer the Lord's call as we come together and sing.